Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, we are in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 25. The great questions. There are great, great questions that all of us have to ask at some point in life, and Jesus is going to be asked a few great questions here that were particularly notable during his day, and I think they're still relevant today. In 1964, in New York City, there was a woman by the name of Kitty Genovese. She was on her way home late one night, and someone began to follow her, and it wasn't long right before she got to her apartment. Uh, that they, matter of fact, she was literally walking into her apartment. They, they began to attack her, and she began to scream out on the street, and she began to yell. And this man began to stab her as he robbed her <clears throat> and, and assaulted her. And it was said that she was stabbed over 30 times. <clears throat> and later on, he had forgotten to get her money, and he came back just a minute later, and she was not dead. And he stabbed her some more and took her wallet. He's in as she screamed. And it was reported later on that 37 people heard the screams, but everyone else thought that, well, maybe someone else is doing something. Maybe that's something I shouldn't get involved with. Maybe that's just the neighbors. And no one did anything. Someone eventually had called the police, but no one interceded on her behalf. And 28-year-old Kitty Genovese died that night. How could that happen? How could that happen in a public place? No one decided to get involved. No one decided to take the risk. Everyone thought someone else would do something, but no one did. Fast forward to 2007, New York subway station 137, and a young man named Cameron uh, Peter Teller falls, or Hope Teller falls as he's beginning to have a seizure, and he falls into the track as train number one is approaching. There's no time, but at this point, there's a man named Wesley Autry who, had, uh, who lived in Harlem and had two young girls that were with him that he was taking care of. They were his daughters. And in a moment's notice, he jumped in to the track, down into the subway station with the train approaching, and he grabbed Cameron and he flew him to the ground, and he recognized they did not have time to get up. And the only thing he could do was hope that, there was, that they would be deep enough underneath the track that it wouldn't kill them. And so he held, uh, he held Cameron down as he's having a seizure, as the train is racing over him. Much to people's amazement, when the train finally stopped, they're still trapped underneath the train, he yells, We're alive! We're alive. Here was a man who didn't know this other man. He was a young film student. He's from Massachusetts. He's 20 years old. He's a white guy that Wesley had never seen. Yet Wesley, who was a former, had been a, a Navy veteran and was a construction worker, left his two young daughters at the time, I believe, were like five and seven, and jumped on a train track in which there was a good reason to think he might not ever come back. Why would someone do that? Why would someone, in the other instance, not say something? 
We all hear stories and tales of good Samaritans. As a matter of fact, I would argue, you know, the, the, the prodigal son is the most popular parable for us as Christians, for people who go to church. But if you don't go to church, here's the parable that everybody knows. You say good Samaritan anywhere in our society. As a matter of fact, uh, Wesley Autry got that title, the good Samaritan. Everybody knows what that means. It means doing something you don't have to. It means helping someone in need at cost to you. That's what Wesley Autry did, and he was held as a hero. And Jesus is going to give us a picture of what it looks like to be a good Samaritan, so to speak. It's interesting. The first nine chapters of the Gospel of Luke, they tell us who Jesus is. They tell you what he's about and who he is. They reveal him as the Messiah, the Savior. We see it even in chapter 9. We see the confession that you are the Christ. And then in 951, the Bible says that Jesus set his sight toward Jerusalem. He headed toward Jerusalem. And it's interesting as we look at this passage, as we look at this story, that we see that Jesus is going to now begin to define not just who I am, but what it looks like to follow Jesus. What it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. The first nine chapters were about who he is. Now he's going to say, this is, what a, this is a picture of someone who is going to be my disciple, someone who's going to follow me. This is what it's going to look like. And it brings us to this famous parable, which starts with these questions. Now, as we look at these questions and we consider our world today, there's something known as the uh, uh, social sins of our day. And it goes like this. Politicians and leaders without moral character. These are the so-to-called the deadly sins of our day. Riches without working for them. Business without morality. Pleasure without conscience. Education without moral principle. By the way, one of our men has worked hard uh, to get the Bible taught as a subject in, in uh, the local uh, LISD program. And uh, would, if you want to talk about that more, we'd be happy to talk to you about that. But education without moral principles, science without a commitment to humanity. What, as we look at what's going on in our society right now, and as we see how unethical experimentations are occurring with the bodies of fetuses and the body of babies, we see our world, we see our nation diving into these social sins. And lastly, worship without sacrifice. Worship without sacrifice. In other words, I believe and I worship, but it costs me nothing. You know the difference between Wesley Autry and anyone else who saw it is he made a sacrifice. He decided to risk his life to take it upon him in order to save a life. And when we say that worship cost us nothing, we see this testament all through the Old Testament. When worship costs us nothing, then it's not really worship at all. You know, there's the sacrifice of praise. And what does that mean, the sacrifice of praise? Well, it's when I come and I decide that I'm going to praise God in spite of my circumstances, in spite of my finances, in spite of my health, I give him praise. There's the sacrifice of prayer. When I decide that I'm going to pray when I don't feel like it, when I really pour my heart out 
in prayer, and I take time, and I sacrifice my time, and what I would rather do, and I sacrifice that, so to speak, in authentic prayer, prayer on behalf of others. And certainly, as I give of my time, as I give of my resources, that's what worship is. It's not sitting and listening. It's not watching what other people are doing. It's what you do. As we consider that, consider this parable. Consider who we are as followers of Christ in the picture that Jesus gives us here in Luke 10.25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as we look at this first start right here, we've talked about this before. It was very typical, unless it was a very large crowd, that the people would sit as well as the rabbi. The rabbi would almost always sit. He would sit as a sign of authority. And as he would sit, others would stand. If the crowd was large, then they would sit as well. If it was a smaller, particularly if it was at uh, at a, a worship experience, then they would all stand. But if it was just a teaching outside, uh, then they may sit as well. But as a sign of respect, if you had a question, instead of going, ooh, ooh, like we do, I got a question, <clears throat> what you would simply do is you would, you would stand and you would wait until the teacher, the master, would notice you. It was a sign of respect that was given. And that's what's transpiring here. There are a group that has gathered around Jesus, and it's fair, a fairly significant group because they're sitting, Jesus is sitting, and we see this, the Bible says that a lawyer, now what it really should say in our vernacular today is <clears throat> this theologically trained individual, someone who had studied the law, when you're speaking of the law, you're speaking of the Old Testament, certainly uh, the first five books of the Bible for sure, the Pentateuch, but he is a theologian. He is a trained student in the law and in theology. And the Bible says that he stood up as a sign of respect or a sign of at least false respect. And he says this age-old question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It was the question, what must I do to be saved? Even though he uses the word inherit, and we all know that you don't inherit your faith just because of your background. Uh, but it's the question that was asked every time. Every time, another time, a lawyer did the same thing to Jesus. And he said, um, you know, what must one do to be saved? And he asked him that question. What do you do to inter- inherit eternal life? You, you know the law. And this time Jesus says, he turns the question on him. Which, by the way, when you get asked a difficult question about your faith, one of the things that you can always do is turn around and ask them a question. Okay, when people try to stick it to you sometimes. And Jesus is a master at this. Teacher, what shall I do? You know, there's a lot of debate, but I know there's that one specific answer, and I hope you give it because it seems like you're letting people in who aren't observing the law. You're letting people who aren't a part of the covenant. You're giving grace to a lot of folks here. And he said to him, okay, let me ask you, what's written in the law? How do you read it? How do you interpret, Mr. Theologian? You're starting this conversation. I'd like to know how you interpret it. And what does he say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all of your mind, with every part of who you are, your time, your talents, your treasures, your faculties, your energy, with all that you are. And then he throws in Leviticus 19, and your neighbor as yourself. 
that this was the common summation of what the law required. If you wanted to just do a short summary statement, if you didn't want to do all 613 laws, this was a summary statement right here. This was the most important part. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now that's an interesting answer, isn't it? Do this and you will live. Matter of fact, this is quoted um, from uh, Leviticus 18. But also if you go to Galatians chapter 3 verse 10, the Bible says, as Paul is speaking here, for all who rely on works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul lets us know, look, if you're going to live by the law, then you're going to have to do it all, every bit of it. You're going to have to be perfect or the curse is upon you. So that's what you can do. If you go back and the lawyer here, he says, all right, do all of this. Do it as a whole. Do it perfectly. And love your neighbors yourself. And he said, uh, and he, and he said well, you've answered correctly. <clears throat> do this and you live. But he desiring, and we're talking about the, the lawyer here. We're talking about the, the seminary student, the theologian. He wants to justify himself. And by the way, that's what we all want to do. We want to justify ourselves. We want to self-justify. We want to make sure that we feel good about what we're doing and who we are and how we're doing it. And that's what he's doing here because he finds himself in a corner. He went up to trap Jesus. And now all of a sudden he goes, how did this happen? Well, let me ask you this. Here's a popular question that's going on during that day. Who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? Because there was, the majority sect would say it was a Jew who is living in covenant, who's keeping the law. That's your neighbor. Still others would say, well, you know, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 19, it said the alien and the sojourner, we have to accept them if they're obeying the law as well, then they're our neighbor as well. Still others would say, you know, it's anybody who believed that's a part of our community, it's inclusive of all Jews and those foreigners who've accepted it. And so there was debates about who the neighbor was. And so the lawyer saying, so now what camp are you trying to find yourself in here, Jesus? What neighbor camp of interpretation are you taking? <clears throat> and Jesus doesn't go into that. What does Jesus do? It says right here, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, last year, when I was in Jerusalem, we went down to Jericho. And even today, just driving it, it's, it's quite the drive. I mean, Jerusalem is at a very high elevation, and basically Jericho is at the bottom of that. And so uh, even today, driving on a bus, it's about a 30-minute drive by bus on a highway. Okay, so you can imagine how long it took them at this time. And the early church father, Jerome, said that this was called the pass of blood. There was an area that they called the pass of blood, and everybody would have been very aware of it. It was an area that you wanted to go through very well fortified, very well lit, but it was a requirement. I mean, for you to go down, you had to go through some areas that were very dangerous. And so when he's telling this story, everybody goes, oh yeah, going to Jericho, that's a dangerous place. And that whole pass of blood thing, you know, you got to be careful down there. Boy, you better have some weapons, you better have some protection there. And so they're very aware of it. This is something that happened quite frequently. 
in verse 31, the Bible says, Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed him by on the other side. Now, this is a priest, and we're talking to a theologian. So he's painted this picture. There's, there's a man, and he's half naked. We don't know what his nationality is. We assume that he's a Jew, but we don't really know because he's beaten. And we also recognize that he has been robbed and he is partially unclosed. So it's probably difficult to tell, particularly when you don't want to tell. And the priest, you know, if someone's going to help you, it ought to be the pastor. But to see, there's several things that could be going on here. One, the man might not be a Jew. He could be. But he's also, he, it looks like he might be dead or about to die. And if you touch a dead body, you're ceremonially, you're ceremonially unclean. Um, not only that, if the guy is still alive, that means that they're not far away. They could get me, and they're maybe giving me a pass right now because I'm a priest and I'm walking on by. But, boy, I go over here and I'm asking for it. And so from self-preservation, from, hey, you know, it seems like he's in a hurry, he's probably trying to get to his office to counsel somebody. He's probably going to offer a sacrifice on someone's behalf. And so the Bible says that he passes by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite. Uh, Levites assisted the pastors. They did a lot of the practical work. They were the associate pastors, so to speak, of that day. So the associate pastor, the youth minister, let's just blame it on him. The student minister, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed on the other side. Well... You know, I, you know, I got the same stipulations that priest does, and I got to go, and I don't know. I'm not really ready to this. You know, I didn't really take this class in seminary, and I haven't done my chaplaincy work yet. What, whatever his excuse was, he marches on as well. And so, as they're hearing this story, they're thinking, uh, these are the people that represent us. Quite candidly, these are the people who are we used to help us distinguish to the money that we give to help the poor. Um, they're, they're taking this in. He very, under, very well knows who these people represent. But then he says, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, I want you to hold on tight for just a moment. But the Samaritans, they're pretty despised at this point. In 722, they're kicked out of the northern kingdom, and so they're carted off to, to Babylon. The Syrians has, have wiped them out, or Syria, they're, they're carted off. And while they're, those that are left are basically the poor and the marginalized, and while they're there, the Assyrians and other people groups come in, and they end, end up uh, intermingling with them, and basically they become a mixed race. And they begin to worship idols uh, they even create later on their own mountain, their own temple. They uh, don't consider the other, other than the first five books of the Bible to be uh, inspired or to be biblical text at all. They um, believe that they have the original copy. And so uh, there's a lot about them. And then when the Israelites try to come back and build a wall, remember the story of Nehemiah, they start to build the wall. It's the Samaritans who are trying to stop them. It's the Samaritans who get in cahoots with Alexander the Great. and It's the Samaritans who will often fight against them. Even though they were their 
kind of distant brothers and cousins. And there's just so many reasons because they've got a long history of hatred between these two groups. It's a racial issue. It's a history issue. And they're just mad at them and they hate them. They hate each other and they despise each other. The way for you to understand this, to get the full gravity of this, if we said this story today, it would go something like this. It would be something like, and the Samaritan or but a Muslim, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Does that give you a little bit better perspective here? Okay. So there's a fear, there's a concern, they're not right, and who is it? It's the Muslim. Don't get stuck there. As he journeyed, he came, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And that word uh, compassion there, ilios. Uh, is the word that emotionally described Jesus more than any other word that's used to, ascri- to ascribe and describe his emotional state. Elias, that's, that's the word that's most often used for, for Jesus, that's the word that means compassion. And we see that this Samaritan has compassion. He went to him and he bound his wounds, pouring oil and wine, which was the medicinal way of handling uh, those Uh, injuries at that time, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him back to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them, this is two days' wages, and he gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now what's interesting about this is a man in this status, he's been robbed, everything he has has been taken from him. He doesn't really have an identity. And if he would have been taken by someone, what traditionally would happen is he would be an indentured servant. He would be a slave, so to speak, until he worked it off. So what this man has done, this Samaritan has done, is he has protected him from slavery. Because the man would not have been able to afford or pay his bills. This Samaritan says, I will pay the price. You would have been enslaved. You cannot take care of yourself. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to pay the price. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers, he said? The one who showed Elias? There's that characteristic of Jesus. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I I don't know that we always get the gravity of this story. It's not just that a a standard by came along and it was a fellow New Yorker. This is someone who was hated and despised and probably it would not have been returned to him. And Jesus is describing who our neighbors are at this point. A very difficult, difficult story if we stop and honestly think about it. Truth be told these questions that are asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What does God require in my relationship to him? Who's my neighbor? And how do I love my neighbor? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, if you're going to try to do it by being good, you're going to have to be perfect. You have to keep all the law in Galatians 3.10 said, you're, you're cursed. Well, then, um, what do I do? 
How do I earn it? Well, you recognize you don't earn it. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. There's nothing that you can earn or deserve. It's what Jesus has done on the cross. And then you start to ask the question, well, how am I going to be that good neighbor? I'm going to try to be a good neighbor. What will motivate me to be this kind of man, this kind of neighbor that Jesus is talking about? Well, let me tell you what won't work. What won't work is that you think, you know, I'm just going to be really good because that's the right thing to do. Because you'll get tired of that. If you're only doing it because, you know, I'm, I'm a good person. And when I can, I'm going to do what's right. But in fact, Jesus is saying, no, I, you're going to have to be good all the time. You're going to have to be perfect. Well, all right, I, I'm going to feel so guilty I'm going to do it all the time. Well, that, that won't get you there either. The p- purpose of this parable is not to go, well, I guess I really need to go help people now. <laughs> I've got to help more people so I can be like Jesus. No, that won't take you very far either way. You just feel guilty. There's no power in that. There's no sustainment in that. And when you get really scared or it gets really hard, you just won't do it. If you're just trying to be good when it gets really hard and it gets really difficult and it's just you, you won't do it. So what is it that would make me a good Samaritan? When you recognize who the good Samaritan is in this story, it's Jesus. He's the ultimate good Samaritan. You see, Jesus went down on our behalf to earth. He came, and because of our sin, he took us upon himself, and he carried us. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God, and he took our wounds of sin, and he covered them, and then he paid the price. He paid the cost, and he purchased us out of the slavery of sin through his blood. And when we see the story of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, that Jesus loved us so much that while we were still against him, he died for us and he provided salvation for us that we will put our hope and trust in him. And then everything that we live is a thank you. It's his spirit pouring out of us that enables us to live the life that Jesus called us to live, to be imitators of Christ. And through the power of his spirit, we live. As Samaritans, so to speak. Not because we think it'll make us a better person. Not because we feel guilty. But because of Jesus Christ. And the grace that has been poured out to us. Through the power of his Holy Spirit. As we submit to his spirit. As we make him the Lord of our lives. So who is our neighbor? Well, Jesus gives us the picture. It's it's anyone that... We see within our sphere. Anyone who has need within our sphere. So your neighbor is certainly next door. But geographically, he lets us know this guy didn't live next door. He came upon him. He saw him. He noticed he was put in his path. God allowed him to come into your world. When we are exposed to the need that we can do something about, and yet we do not, then we're the priest. Well, I'll do it. Depends on who it is. Is it somebody in my neighborhood? Somebody that I like? Somebody that acts like me? I guarantee you the priest would have helped him. He'd saw one of his fellow parishioners and go, oh, I notice him. He teaches in our class. Let's get you up here. So many times we decide it's who 
who it is. Now, they need to look like us, act like us, and believe like us. Then I'll be a Samaritan. It's not what Jesus was teaching. What about when? You know what? When it works for me. When I'm not busy and I don't have some other things going on in my life. I, you know, when I, when I get older, when I get more financially secure, when I learn a little bit more about the Bible, I don't know when I'm going to do that, but when, when I do that, when, that'll be a good time. Well, now let's, we've already talked about who, what do you mean? You know, I'm, I just can't help people all the time because, you know, if I help them, that may mean that I, there's something I don't get to do. I mean, I've got a limited amount of resources, so I've got to be careful about who I help and when I do it. There's just a little bit here. You know, I've got a little bit here I could do this, but, I, you know, if I do, matter of fact, if I do more than that, you know, I, I don't know about my vacations. I don't, you know, there's some things that I'm going to do this week. If I help here, and Jesus just gives a parable where this guy certainly is probably not wealthy. He's traveling alone, and he just gives. It doesn't matter who. It doesn't matter when. And it doesn't matter what. That's the real picture. So, if that's true, then how do I love my neighbor today? Let me give you some ways that you can love your neighbor today. You can love your neighbor by people that are in your neighborhood, people God puts in your fears, by inviting them to, to eat with you. Man, that sounds odd. But can I tell you this? When, when you invite someone to eat in your home or someplace, what you're saying is, I accept you. In the Jewish culture, it means I totally accept you. I think God gave us food for a reason, not just to keep our bodies going and make our bellies happy. I think one of the purposes of the meal is to connect with people. And when you do that, you connect. Another thing we do is we stop and we greet and we listen. Whether you're walking through your neighborhood, maybe it's at your office, maybe it's a place that you go to shop, do you sometimes allow God to, to let you stop and listen? I've noticed that people want to talk more often than I'm ready to listen. That's an indictment on me, by the way. After all, I am a priest. But to stop and listen. You know, there's somebody that at your favorite restaurant that probably waits on you quite often. You ever ask them who they are, what they do, what's their background, what's their hope? Do we stop and listen? They're our neighbor. Who is it that you're praying for right now? In your neighborhood, at work? Who is the person? That, one of the best ways that we can be a neighbor is praying. Praying that people would come to know Christ. Praying that we would connect them to God. So being a good neighbor means praying. It means sacrificing. When those around us have a need and we take some of the resources that God has given us to steward and we, we help you invite them to church. Hopefully, you even share the gospel with them, but to invite them to church. You know, I, I'll never forget, I was talking to a family one time, and they were from a different background. And I invited them to come to church, and they said, well, we thought about coming to your church. And I said, well, why, why aren't you going to? We, th- we talked about it a couple times. I said, well, to be honest with you, our next-door neighbor goes to your church, and they go every week. <clears throat> We've lived by them for three years, and they never once invited us. I go, ouch. 
last week, men of Nehemiah, we, um, we, gave, we gave a dollar on behalf of every person that walked on this campus. And then some of you added to that. And we gave over $6,000 to the men of Nehemiah. That, a great program where men are being transformed by the power of the gospel. And uh, God is recreating and making them new through that program. And I, and I thank you. And some of you, uh, and if you would like to in the future, if you would be willing to say, hey, I want to develop a relationship. I, I want to know. I want to contact. I want to be in relationship with them. And some of you have done that. And we, many of you did lunch with them. And you get the names, and you're praying for them. Some of you are employing them, and you're hiring them. That's one of the goals. If you've got a skill, if you have a business to employ these men, it's one of the greatest things that we can offer uh, outside of their spiritual encouragement. Um, Maybe you have a skill. You're a dentist. You're a doctor. uh, You have some other skill. And many of you are doing that. That's one of the ways that we love our neighbor. We're doing something this weekend, Feed the Hunger. By the way, we have... uh, Man, we've got Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We've got practically every shift already filled. And many of those are people from the community that are coming in. Many of them are our neighbors. Uh, A a year ago, this time, I stood at a table, and everyone that I met didn't go to our church. They're all neighbors from the community that social media, people that had invited them, kids had invited them. It's a great opportunity. We will share the gospel each time, but we're also preparing meals uh, for those, uh, some of it will go here locally, some of it will go to the men of Nehemiah, and a lot of it will go to the Syrian border for refugees who are coming in there. Because God has called us to feed and to share. It's exactly what we'll be doing here. It's exactly what the program that we work with will be doing. And so I, I want to say this. we got plenty of people, and if you want to sign up, sign up for a Saturday. There's still about 70 spots left, which means we've, I think we've got 900 people that are doing it right now. I can tell you where you can help us, though, is it's going to cost us about $85,000. And uh, so we got a lot of people that signed up, not a lot of people that have given. So I'd encourage you, it's a great place to give. Um, Two things are happening. We're feeding those who are most in need, and we're sharing the gospel. See, here's the deal. Uh, If you're, uh, excuse me for using this term, but a lot of times if you're really liberal and you're in your thought process, you think, boy, we need to help the poor, and I sure like it. But when you talk about that sharing the gospel, ooh, that makes me nervous. And if you're very conservative, fundamentalist, sometimes you're like, yeah, that's right, share the gospel. But when we start talking about helping the poor, that makes me nervous. I love it that Jesus just didn't get nervous. <laughs> he just didn't care who it was, what, where they were, and when it was. He just helped them. That's the whole picture of the Samaritan. So I want to encourage you. This is an opportunity where we are meeting the needs physically and spiritually through your gifts and through your time. So I encourage you to be a part of that. That's a way for you to be a good neighbor. You see, end of the day, this is the way it is. We all are in one of the three camps. We, we live by one of these philosophies. We're the thief. What's, your mine is, what's, what's yours is mine, and so I'm going to try to get it. I'll take it from you. We talked about one of the great social sins of the day is lack of ethics in business. Number two, we're the priest of the Levites. What's mine is mine, and so I'm going to try to keep it. This is mine. It was given to me. I'm going to try to keep it. But the Good Samaritan says, what's mine is God's, and so I want to share it. I'm a steward. There in 2014, 
there was something that was started online called the Darfar Initiative. And uh, 1.7 million people signed up on this website and were part of this social network, and they liked it on Facebook. 1.7 million people liked it and said, by liking it, said, hey, we commit to help and to spread the word of the need here. We want to help and spread the word. Well, then they went back and uh, they did some research, and what they found was that 99.8% of the people who liked and said, we believe there's tremendous need in Darfur, Darfur. We believe there's tremendous tremendous need there, and we want to help, and we want to be a part of this, and we want to spread the word. 99.8%, that means just 0.2%, not even a percent. 99.8% didn't give a nickel, not a penny. 72% of the people who liked it didn't share it anywhere else. They didn't share it on, the other, on their social network. They didn't encourage anybody else to be a part. That's it. And they call this phenomena. It's, it's the picture of looking like you're a Samaritan but doing nothing. It's like eating empty calories and expecting health benefits. That's the picture. Hey, I don't want us to be that we like feed the hunger. We like men in Nehemiah. We like the missions that are going on. We like what Jesus said, but we do nothing. What about you? What are you going to do? Who are you going to be? Are you going to be the priest? Or are you going to be the Samaritan? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you that Lord, you died for us while we were still sinners. And Lord, that you have been such a good Samaritan to us. Your love has been showered on us in so many ways. And Lord, we're so thankful and so grateful for all that you've done. And we could never say enough. And Lord, as we come to this time of the offering, Lord, we say thank you. God, I say thank you for what was given for the men of Nehemiah. Lord, I say thank you for what's going to be given for Feed the Hunger. Lord, so that we can buy even more meals. So that we can do even more. God, let us not be simply the spectators who put our thumbs up and yet we do nothing. Lord, let us not be the priest and the Levites, but let us be about the work of Jesus Christ. Let us be imitators of Christ. Let us do what Jesus would do as we follow him, as we are inspired and hope and strengthened by the Holy Spirit to follow you. We thank you for this time. In your name we pray. Amen.